what you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 20 in which we have a returning guest and that is Ian Ferguson from the White Lotus of Light YouTube channel. Now Ian is a Vedic astrologer and a very good friend of the show. He actually joined me in the very first episode of the Parallel Mike podcast. Now the reason I wanted to get Ian on for this episode specifically is because I knew I was going to be tackling a very controversial subject And it's one that divides a lot of people already, and that is cryptocurrencies, and I'm including in that Bitcoin also. Ultimately, my take on it is very nuanced, so I knew at some point I'd have to do a deep dive on this subject, and I wanted that to be in conversation with somebody. So somebody who perhaps has a different take to my own, but also somebody that would have the emotional intelligence to take on this subject and debate it and not take that personally and vice versa, me offering the same. Because, you know, we are emotional creatures and you see this a lot in investing. When people invest in something financially, they often invest in it psychologically too. So they treat it almost as a personal attack if they hear somebody speak negatively about the asset or what they perceive as negative. It could just be somebody having a different opinion even. And you know, this is a tribal mentality. And in investing psychology, we actually have a term for this. It's called sunk cost. And it's one of the leading reasons that people lose money in the financial markets because it's what happens when we let our egos run the show and we don't deal with our ego. And you see this all the time in life. People are often unwilling to listen to opposing opinions that challenge their own beliefs or ideas, even when they are presented authentically and based on sound reasoning or have evidence to back it up. If it opposes their own beliefs and ideas, they simply refuse to listen. That happens all the time. And of course, the reason for this is simple. It's our ego, because to hear opposing views opens us up to the possibility that we were wrong. And you know, our ego doesn't like that. We like to be right all of the time. Now, of course, in the world of investing, that can be an absolute killer, but it also can be in life also, as we're finding out right now with what's taking place across the world. But the simple fact is, great investors make wrong decisions all of the time. The difference between them and the average investor is that they know it. They accept it. They're comfortable with that. And because of this, as soon as new information comes to light that causes them to rethink their original thesis, they act on it. And that's what makes them so effective as investors. They have a high level of self-knowledge and the kind of psychological mastery that other investors lack. Now, bad investors and the people that always lose money in the market are the people who hang on for dear life to their original theses. And they'll try and prove to the world that they are right, even when all of the evidence is coming in to show that maybe they got it wrong. And you know, look at 
at what's happening in the world right now, the injections that people took from 2020 to 2021, for example, just look at how deep people are burying their head in the sand. We've got a massive die-off taking place right now across the world. We've got immune systems that have been destroyed, myocarditis, heart attacks. We're seeing celebrities and footballers collapsing and dying. So many things are occurring, but these people, many of them, are still trying to defend their position and hold on to a narrative that has already been admitted by those who created it to have been a lie. And that is because, of course, they've got sunk costs. They've already invested psychologically because they took the injection. And so they simply refuse to accept that it could have been false, even though everything is telling them it was. And that's a really good example of the power of the ego and the power of sunk cost psychology. So going back to tonight's show, I wanted to avoid all of that in this episode. And that's why I knew I needed to find the right guest to go down this rabbit hole with. Now, Ian turned out to be the right guest for this one because, well, for many reasons, actually. But one of them is he actually approached me with the idea of investing in the cryptocurrency XRP because he told me he had some intuitive knowledge around it that it was going to go up and it was a good speculation to earn money. Now it turned out Ian was bang on the money with that one because just a week before this interview XRP doubled in price. I think it was almost double. So in many ways this makes this conversation even more relevant. It's the perfect time to be having it. So in tonight's show we're going to be going deep into this topic with no ego but purely to think this one through and we're going to take the audience with us on a journey. And irrespective of your position on this one I think we all have to consider our own blind spots and the what ifs. So in tonight's show, I go into a very specific history around a past deception that was absolutely huge involving the NSA. And if your previous position on whether or not they could have created cryptos or Bitcoin was simply there is no way they could pull that off. Well, I think this story will almost certainly dispel that myth. So in part one, we're going to be looking at what this history is. And then in part two, we're going to begin to discuss the morality of investing in certain cryptos, which are overtly positioning themselves as XRPs as part of the future control system of central bank digital currencies. So me and Ian have a really healthy debate on this one because we actually sit on different sides of the fence. And we discuss the spiritual and karmic consequences of where we put our money. So I think this is a really necessary discussion. And ultimately, it's a conversation about personal principles and why it's so important that we maintain them. So as you can maybe tell from the long introduction, which I felt was needed for this one, this episode is going to be a wild ride. And members, please head over to paulonmike.com and sign in to hear the full episode. And for those of you who are yet to become a member, it not only supports the channel and censorship-free content like mine, but it also gives you access to fantastic conversations like this one. And you can listen to part two of each and every episode. So in closing, thank you all for listening. I hope this one gets you thinking and questioning more because that is ultimately what it's all about for me. And I wish you all good health and happiness. And of course, I will see you all in the next one. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast tonight. I'm joined with the great Ian Ferguson from the White Lotus of Light for the second time, Ian. So thank you. You was actually episode number one as well. So not only was you my first guest, you was here in the first episode. So you've already got a special place in the history of my life on the podcast. I'll always remember you as my first guest. So it's really exciting to have you back. Uh, But first and foremost, Ian, just welcome. Tell me a little bit and listeners about how's your life going, what you've been up to, any updates in your world? Oh, yeah. I mean, since last time I was on the show, I think that um, it's kind of a little bit in limbo right now because of um, 
one of the, the, the one of the principal people um, had a had had something very big happen in their life that has delayed things. But um, I actually was in the process of winding down. Um, you know, I was just was on Sam Tripoli's show, Tinfoil Hat, and I was in the process of winding down my astrology business because I was going to move into like uh, astrology and other spiritual consulting for a corporation, which by the way, like when they were, you know, sort of vetting me and interviewing me or whatever, they just, just kind of let, let, um, you know, casually fly. They were like, oh yeah, all fortune 500 corporations use astrologers and occultists. That's just a known fact. And I was like, wow. really? And they said, that's oh, they, a they huge keep disclosure. They keep it tightly under wraps, but like, he just like, was like a hand wave. Like everybody knows that, you know, and this guy is like, a, you know, he's been in a lot of, uh, corporate rooms and he was said it with confidence and that was a bit of i mean it's not surprising if you look at like the exxon symbol or especially texaco is like the most obvious uh occult symbol um you can then look at things like uh gmail is very similar to if not identical to um, a specific masonic apron the google play is actually a lucifer sigil there's like lots and lots of occult stuff. Fidelity Investments is the freaking Illuminati pyramid, you know? So, um, but still, it was just funny for someone to say that to me when they're talking to me and they were like, yeah, so we want you, we want you to, to work with us. And what they're doing is, and I can't get into that at all, but what they're doing is something I really believe in and is really beautiful. And I think it's going to uh, be really helpful to the planet. Otherwise, I wouldn't be involved. I wouldn't even consider it. Um, and I never would have imagined, despite that the angels told me exactly this would happen like eight or nine months ago, I never would have imagined that like, you know, through through this milieu, I met a gentleman who was formerly in um, the highest levels of finance. I can't say what country, I really can't say anything to remotely identify this person out of respect for him and phenomenal human being. And the funny thing is, is that a couple of the principals are people who were sort of in industries and so forth like this guy um you know he's he's sort of unrelated to this but they've really like had spiritual awakenings in the last few years the last five years or so and i'm i feel really uh, confident in my ability to read people especially if i meet them in real life and like uh one of the principles i met in real life and i even gave him a hug you can't hide from me if i give you a hug i can read your energy and uh yeah he had a legitimate spiritual awakening he's like oh my god what have I been doing with my life? And uh, this other guy, very similar thing, although he had been, it had been building for a long, long time with him, but he had been working at a level of finance. I won't say in what country, uh, this, this other gentleman to where he was handling trillions of dollars a day and flows, right? Not, not like he himself was a trillionaire, not like um, he was just uh, directing flows in the trillions on a daily basis. And uh, he's a good person. I'm I'm utterly convinced of that. And so there's people starting to wake up and I'm starting to refer to them as like most high sleeper cells, right? And this is how we get that transition. How we get that transition is God, right? God intervening. And what better way to intervene than to start taking some of these peoples who are at the pinnacles of power and have all the right contacts and all the right knowledge that you would never have gotten. You know, if these people had had a, spiritual awakening 20 years ago they wouldn't have been able to create the contacts or develop the skills that they have now to do good work um you know because they would have been rooted out immediately from their industries or whatever and so um anyways 
um, I'm going to be involved in some projects, uh, and I'm sorry to be mysterious, but I just kind of have to, to out of respect for it. Um, <clears throat> and also, I want it to succeed, but I'll be involved in some projects that'll be really, really helpful to a lot of people, and I'm really excited about it. But it's a little bit, uh, th this crisis happened for one of them, so so my timeline on it is a bit nebulous at the moment, so I've sort of opened the astrology back up, and so some of the stuff I said in that tinfoil hat podcast about that I was winding it down no, I wasn't trying to tease people or talk about business or whatever. It just, life happens, right? And so, um, you know, and then just some other really amazing things have happened in my life. And I'll go ahead and provide you with a segue here. The angels told me back in January, February, not because it was good, not because it was some most high vibrating thing, but they said, XRP and XLM, you need to buy them. And I had bought XLM here and there because I've dabbled in crypto, not with the thought of, wow, crypto is like going to free humanity. I've never bought that at all, <laughs> especially not uh, Bitcoin. You know, I just, I knew there was sort of trap there, even though I'm, you know, I'm evolving my position on many things based on new data. When I get new data from a solid source that, um, you know, causes me to challenge and rethink my position. I try and be flexible. I try and like very rigorously pursue whatever I'm researching, but then hold my conclusions lightly. Because if you start getting too married to your conclusions, I, I believe it's Robert Anton Wilson, the author who said, uh, certainty is the death of reason. And I really agree with that. You have to keep, you have to, you know, work really hard to reach a conclusion that you feel comfortable with and then let it evolve over time. And so the angel said buy XRP and XOM and I had bought Stellar here and there because it was on exchanges, but I'd only vaguely heard of XRP. And uh, so I did what they said and I just got a bunch of money and, you know, got in at like, I don't know, 36 cents, something like that. And uh, then I started researching and researching it. And then like the angels gave me more information and I was like, wow, this is uh wow. This is, there's really something to this. And so that's probably a good segue for you because I know we're going right into crypto today is kind of like where you want to focus. <laughs> yeah. So, so. yeah, well, the reason why I decided to do this episode, and this is an episode that I've put off doing for a long time, Ian, and the reason for that is because it's a very controversial one. People are extremely passionate about the things they invest in, particularly when yeah. they tie <laughs> up their... I guess, philosophical views in it or even religious views or spiritual views that these things could be a tool to, for freedom, you know, to save us from this coming dystopia and the technocracy. And maybe that, you know, we have to fight fire with fire. Uh, so I put mm -hmm. off doing it because, uh, you know, a lot of the people that support my work do like cryptocurrencies. And I'm somebody who helps people make sense of investing and therefore I can be extremely mm -hmm. dispassionate. I don't have to like what you're investing in. I can still help you make risk managed decisions. And I do that all the time. Uh, so mm -hmm. my take is nuanced. However, I do have a very specific kind of outlook towards cryptos in terms of my own personal uh, philosophical beliefs and my religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so I had to find somebody that could handle that conversation in the way that, I would want to discuss it and would be able to be emotionally intelligent enough to have it. And I couldn't think I've thought of anyone better to have it with than you, because you actually emailed me about XRP a while back. Uh, and you told me, you know, Mike, have you checked this out? And I said, yes. Uh, so I knew you was up on it. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I'm going to ask if Ian will come back on and do that conversation. 
Uh, and yeah, I think it's a difficult conversation to have because like I said, there's a lot that can go wrong with it. And I'm not an expert on anything, but I certainly do have a lot of information around these specific subjects. So uh, really we're going on an adventure together today. And neither of us has like massively prepared for this in terms of, you know, I didn't want to spring anything on you and vice versa. And I just want to do <laughs> well, it. Well, you point. kind of did. You gave me the notes <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> In, fa- in no, fairness, sorry, I just had to razz you a bit. Go ahead. In, fa- in, fairness, in fairness to me, I did just write the notes 10 minutes before I gave them to you. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of prep, people. We're professionals. So, yeah. <laughs> continue, Mike. Yeah, but I think we've both probably put thought a lot of thought into this and reflection anyway, oh, because yeah, we both absolutely. do in our own lives. So, it's one of those things yeah. where I think we're just going to freestyle it. But I thought the notes would be useful. And I guess mm-hmm. the disclaimer for the audience is. Like, I'm going to come into this. I leave my ego at the door when we have these discussions. I know for a fact with my intuitive feeling that Ian does that anyways, which is why I asked him to do this conversation. Uh, And I would just ask for the listeners to do the same because you can join us on this journey if you do that. And you might, you know, might you might discover something new. You might see things from a different perspective. And I'm open for that happening too. And I'm sure Ian is as well. So let's go into it with that open mind. And hopefully on the other side of this, we'll all come out of it out of it with something new. That's what my hope is in. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, and and I, I just want to say that, you know, I I've been studying finance probably since 2007 to some degree, mostly like macro stuff. Although, man, I tell you, if there's one thing and we don't need to derail here, but for whatever reason, bonds make my brain hurt. Like, I just don't understand the bond market. <laughs> it's so weird to me. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't understand why the wealthiest people on earth, like they're almost all in bonds. It's very odd, I guess, because if you control the government, you can control the outcome. And it's just the the depth of the liquidity pools and that you can get in and out. It's probably like the, the one place where you can get in and out of it as an investor without really a a large investor, right? Billions that you Mm -hmm. can get in and out of it and say it's a, you know, us treasuries or whatever bonds that you don't, uh, you don't move the market that much because of the depth of the market. And I think that that has to be part of it, but it puzzles me that the wealthiest people on earth, like the Rothschilds, for example, are very much into bonds. It's very odd to me. And I don't really understand that, but um, I want to say that, a big part of the reason that uh, I've invested the way I have is very much rooted in the spiritual and, and my connection with the angels. And so so for, for some of your more, I don't know, materially grounded folks, if you have that uh, viewership, like, uh, you know, I, I just have to admit right out of the gate that I have a very specific framework uh, spiritually that I'm coming from that is why I have arrived at the position I have and that I feel comfortable making the investments I have, despite that, I think we have a lot of common ground on our concerns with crypto. So. Awesome. That's a really nice introduction. And yeah, just echo what you said, the bond market is super liquid, but I guess the other thing I'd add to that too is uh, somebody needs to buy that government debt. And if you're um, up there at the top, you know, you've got a duty that you have to play as well. I think, you know, they're all kind of cogs in the machine. Mm -hmm. And if you've got trillions at your disposal, uh, they need that trillion. So that, you know, I think, I think it's a symbiotic relationship with the uh, system, you know, all kind of keeping the system alive for, for what, and I guess it, you know, it serves them too, because not only do they own those bonds, they own a ton of companies. And if that financial system collapses around them, then it has a devastating consequence on their wealth 
they they need it to go as long as they understand it's going to continue. And then they all might get together and say, right, now's the time. We're going to have this controlled demolition. But up until that point, it's all hands on deck. So deploying capital in these bombs is necessary. You know, I'm reminded of a a saying or or a quote from James Carville, the rage and Cajun. Man, that guy, I do not like him at all. That was uh, Clinton's primary political advisor, absolutely ruthless politically. And he said, when I die, right, this guy's obsessed with power. He said, when I die, I want to come back as the bond market because that puts the fear of God in everyone. (laughs) I've never had that one before. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be getting that quote a little bit wrong, but he said something to that effect. And so uh, interesting, right? Interesting. And I agree with you, that symbiotic relationship, because you got to fund the, the war machine, because, uh, you know, I've been learning a lot about the the, the Rodinites, thanks to there's this excellent, although some of their conclusions I find disturbing on a variety of levels, but there's this excellent uh, YouTube channel called American Intelligence Media, I think it's called. And um, these guys have done absolutely staggering levels of research into ancient history, make me feel like I have never even opened a book. And uh, they talk about um, the merchant bankers and that banking by the sword or something to that effect. And so there's always been this symbiotic relationship between the king, the, the bankers and the military. And so I think that plays into that bond market piece to just tie that off, maybe. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the way I've always looked at it, and I know we just said you said you're going to tie it off, but I'm adding to it. <laughs> no, no, feel free. Feel but free. Yeah. I just meant my thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, I was just, it just came to me like, you know, this is how I foresee it too, is that at the end of the day, uh, the true wealth in this world doesn't use currency. The currency is the control tool, but it's not necessary for their wealth. Their wealth pre-exists the currency. The currency is just the control metric. They own land, they own palaces, they own gold, silver, you know how it works. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what it says on paper. I I think if if the person is measured in paper wealth, then they're probably not the guys at the top. You know, they're getting to play rich. They're getting to play rich. It's land. It's always land, in my opinion. Gold and silver, sure. And they have that, and that's for their own trading. And there's spiritual reasons for why gold and silver and and copper, to some degree, are are used. Um, But... uh, yeah, I mean, it's really land. At the end of the day, it's land. It's land yeah. that has uh, useful assets, and it's land is wealth, and then people is about control. So For sure. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. So uh, maybe let's just begin by talking a little bit about the history of crypto. Uh, and I do have sure. a timeline here, and I thought this would be quite interesting to get into. Uh, and mm-hmm. I certainly am not an expert on crypto, but I think it's mm-hmm. good to frame it before we get into that discussion around the more esoteric and spiritual aspect sure. of, of going into these kind of assets that may or may not be uh, tools for good or bad. And I guess we're going to try and unpack some of that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first kind of timeline I got here was a pretty good one from techguide.com. And it begins with this one, the 1980s. And I think that's going to shock a lot of people that actually a lot of this crypto stuff goes all the way back to the 1980s, which is the years, uh, well, the decade I was born in. I don't know about you. I was born in the 70s. So yeah, so you're a little bit older yeah. than me. So it's a long, long time. Now, most people think of crypto as beginning with uh, Satoshi Nakamoto and Bitcoin and the white paper that he released. Uh, not true. It goes all the way back to the no. 1980s. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, back yeah, in the yeah. back in the nineteen eighties, I'll just name a few things that were going on back there. So it says here several attempts prior to the current versions of cryptocurrencies failed to achieve broad support. These early 1980s notions from the Netherlands and the United States included DigiCash, which went bankrupt in the 1990s, and that was the first prominent digital currency. Uh, and then there was oh, DigiCash. This is important. So DigiCash was founded by American computer scientist David Cham. Now, he's going to come back around again later, so I just wanted to point that out. And then there was a few others as well. There was one called BitGold, actually, that was a digital asset that was going to be backed by gold. Now, that's interesting because that was back in the 19... Hmm. I think that was early 1990s, BitGold. And people are talking about that now as if it's a new thing. It's not. It was around then. Uh, And then it kind of fast-forwarded. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, as we'll get to later on. Uh, But really... I guess the modern era of cryptos came in with Satoshi Nakamoto with his white paper. Nobody knows who he is. It's a pseudonym. A lot of people think that it was a group of individuals. Some people think that maybe it was Hal Finney who died later on. Uh, What's your just initial take on Satoshi Nakamoto, Ian, just to get your views on who is he or do you have any clue? Yeah, so um, that's... I mean, of course, this is like the the $64 trillion question in uh, crypto, right? Because it's actually listed in the Coinbase, um, not prospectus, but um, they have to do a filing about risks in order to do their IPO. And one of the risks they pointed out was if ever the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto is revealed, absolutely dead. For their company and the investors, and they had to admit that uh, their lawyer had to say that as proves an IPO, and then turns around and sues them. But the SEC, as the Satoshi, you know, one thing I'd add to the '80s that's not on this list here is that David Schwartz, who is the Ripple, right, talking about XRP, the Ripple CTO, Chief Technology Officer, he uh, got a patent in the '80s for basically what looks like uh, an alpha version of a distributed ledger technology, and um, maybe cloud computing, kind of like a crossover between those two. Uh, quite remarkable. I mean, you can look that up. And I'm not enough of a tech geek to even begin to understand really what it means or what the implications are of it. Uh, but, you know, something else I don't see in here is SHA-256, which is what the Bitcoin is built on, was absolutely developed by the NSA. And it's a little thin. It's a thin thread. But David Schwartz was uh, a contractor for the NSA at that point in time around when uh, SHA-256 came out. And also I don't see on here that there was a white paper that very clearly described something akin to Bitcoin that again came out of the NSA, right? And what's the NSA? They're the world's greatest cryptographers. What is cryptocurrency? It's cryptography. So I'm of the personal opinion that Bitcoin came out of NSA somehow. So that's where it gets a little bit complicated because we don't know like who who uh, I mean we have guesses you know some people say David Schwartz I think it's a little thin to say that it's him just because you know like first of all I don't think it's an individual I think it's probably multiple people I don't know if you're aware of this but Department of Homeland Security there was a leak where on video there's an internal discussion at Homeland Security and they said they interviewed the quote four Satoshis I never heard that. No, absolutely not. Never came up in my research, that one. 
But yeah, well, I mean, this is something that is, uh, they, they've tried to keep it under wraps and trying to, who's Satoshi? We don't know. And just think about it. Like, there's no way that the United States government, with all of their insane technological surveillance, doesn't know. I don't care who you are. They know who it is. They've always known who it is, right? Or at least they know where it came from, meaning like the computers and so forth. And that's the other thing is like, the Genesis block, the initial first block, like that comes from someplace like it's in within the United States. I'm almost positive, like the IP or whatever on it. Once you get through all the BS and that there's some link again to David Schwartz there, maybe. And that guy's a super giga ultra mega genius, the CTO of Ripple. I mean, that guy is like literally his head looks like it's twice as big as the regular human's <laughs> head. It's wild. I mean, he's kind of a big guy anyway, but his. His head is just absolutely massive. I mean, that guy is a giga ultra genius. Yeah, um, but th this guy and... is completely enmeshed with the system as well, though. You're right about that. Oh, absolutely. Back I mean, in like the, I mean, well, before his white paper in the 1990s, and he was talking in that white paper about having a um, computer system that would have all of these computers working together to achieve a task. Uh, which is basically, mm -hmm. yeah, that's how, you know, the blockchain's working. So he was definitely thinking on it. And then that other guy, that David Charm, he was really getting onto it. In the 19, I mean, 1982, he produced his white paper uh, and when he was working for the University of California. And I've got it here, and I'll just say the quick introduction for it. I'm not going to go into it too far. Mm -hmm. But he says, the automation of the way we pay for goods and services is already underway, as can be seen by a variety of growth of electronic banking services available to consumers. The ultimate structure of the new electronic payment system may have a substantial impact on personal privacy, as well as the nature and extent of criminal use of payments. Ideally, the new payment system should address both of these seemingly conflicting set of concerns. Now, here is where he describes pretty much a cryptocurrency. So he talks about an anonymous payment system like banknotes and coins suffers from lack of controls and security. So he says that what they would have to do is create a fundamentally new kind of cryptography proposed here in the white paper, which allows an automated payment system with the following properties. Inability of third parties to determine the payee, time or amount of payments made by an individual, and ability of individuals to provide proof of payment or to determine the identity of the payee under exceptional circumstances. And as he goes through that, he basically describes a new form of cryptocurrency. And that was 82. And then in 1996, you already mentioned it was the NSA white paper, how to make a mint the cryptography of anonymous electronic cash. And that was, again, based on the work of David Charm. But also, did you hear about the other kind of co-writer of that? Well, it was based on a lot of his work, which was Tatsuaki Okamoto, which a lot of people jumped upon because Tatsuaki Okamoto, people say Satoshi Nakamoto. And if you look at Tatsuaki Okamoto's work history, if somebody was going to be creating Bitcoin, well, he's got the resume, put it that way. Now, I'm not saying it is him. I'm just saying these are interesting mm -hmm. threads to look at in the history of the development of crypto. So I don't know if you've gone down any of those threads, but there's quite a few. Uh, out there. Yeah, actually, you know, um, th th this is a very murky field. And um, to answer the short, the short answer is no, I wasn't familiar with this David Charm until this conversation or or that uh, Japanese gentleman who I didn't <laughs> hear the name and it's not in the notes. So I won't even, I would butcher it even if I had it written out for me. Um, I think I just, whatever it, it sounds like. 
like Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, you know, one of the theories out there, just real quick, is that actually um, four Japanese consortiums came up with it and teams of engineers. And that's like, um, let's see, Toshiba, Motorola, and I forget what the other two, but that basically it's taking the first four letters of four different Japanese cor corporations. Um, I think that one's just lazy. I, I, it could be true, but, you know, I think it's lazy. I think it was probably four individuals. You know, you can't have, we would, if it was huge, broad teams, we would know, right? So it's got to be like a small, close-knit click. And the way Homeland Security describes it, it's not like, I don't think they were like, we interviewed the entirety of Toshiba and blah, 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 blah. And also like, how would Department of Homeland Security have access to Japanese corporations? That doesn't make sense. That would be like CIA or somebody else, right? Uh, Department sure. of Homeland Security is national and international to some degree, but it's mostly United States based, which leads me to believe that these individuals, regardless of what country they were born in, probably live in the United States currently. I think that's an astute point, because when you look at the development of all of these things, it's very U.S. centric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, another thing that just came to mind when you were describing and just this 1980s timeline. If you go back a little bit further, there's an unbelievably disturbing, uh, someone recorded it and it was leaked, you know, like 50 years later, but there's this unbelievably disturbing presentation given by, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now. I can see his hideous demonic face. Um, his daughter is with Joe Scarborough. God, why can I not think of it? Uh, Mika Brzezinski, he's a big name Brzezinski. There was some conference of evil elites in the 70s maybe even the late 60s, but I'm pretty sure it was in the 70s. And he said, we're, we're, we're very close to a turning point to where we'll have files for everyone that elites can quickly just pull up their entire dossier in electronic form. And we can use that to pinch and control people. And he kind of also alluded to financial records being part of that and the, and the process of computerizing uh, financial records and finance would be a key point in this and of course you see this playing out right with the apparently not as bad as we think uh chinese social credit system right it's apparently not as complete and totalitarian as they have us believe one of the things that people need to recognize is that very often the elites overstate their own abilities for that black pilling demoralization effect and that Absolutely. there is no alternative it's fait accompli you can't resist it and right if that was true we'd already all be chipped and in a pod with the why would they like why would they be dialing up the propaganda to 11 or 12 if they had it on, on lock, right? They wouldn't. They would just keep frog boiling until all of a sudden our great grandkids wake up chipped in a pod, you know, like, but they haven't been doing that. They And, and that speaks to me of desperation. This fact that like they're dialing the propaganda up and like breaking the dial. It's so high and it's so ludicrous and over the top. To me, that's a symptom of that they're losing control. And, you know, I, we'll save that for like when we get to the spiritual dimensions. But uh, if there was a lockstep among all the elite of the planet, it would be over. And yeah, this, it would be. This fraud. is why I love hearing your take, Ian, because it's so similar to mine. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree that most of what is happening right now is psyop now i have to caveat that, that there are some extremely terrifying things that exist uh, and there's lots of things sure. that exist that we don't even uh, comprehend fully yet which we're going to get into a little bit later with quantum computing but ultimately mm -hmm. if the the best evidence of that is just go back to what happened the last few years the whole thing relied 
on psychological manipulation. There was no actual way to make anyone do a thing. They had to make, I mean, US people essentially enslaved themselves. You know, there was no chips. There was no QR code system. It was all just PSYOP and ruse. But if we fall for it, it gives them time to create the systems. And that's what's happening now. They are creating systems, but they're a long way away from it. And if everyone just stood up today and said, no, we're not going down that path, it would end. It would end. It would have to because they wouldn't have the common uh, support. So I think I agree with you on that. And I think what we're getting at here for the listeners is the point is that the cryptocurrency uh, world goes back a really long way. And there's a big background there that most people are aware of. So a lot of people think that there's this kind of Jesus type story. And it is a Jesus type story that this man, Satoshi Nakamoto, came out of nowhere. He created this for the good of humanity. He disappeared. Uh, and that's just not the way it is. This was going back for about 20, uh, 20 years, at least probably 30 years before. Uh, I would say 30, maybe even 40, a long, long way. And um, do you know the story of Crypto AG, Ian? Because I really wanted to discuss that as part of this conversation. Uh, I mean, uh, possibly, but I don't know it by that title. Like, do you want to um, fill me in here? Okay, so Crypto AG was a company that really came into prominence just after World War II. Now, during World War II, they were responsible for building some of the most state-of-the-art code-making and code-breaking machines for the U.S. troops. So they were masters in cryptography and encryption. Now, because they were so successful during World War II, they attracted an awful lot of capital, and they were flush with money once World War II had finished, and they built this company from the ground up. It was a really big company in the end, and it was based out of Switzerland, and it was called Crypto AG. So in the years that followed, because of their reputation and all of this money, they became essentially the world's most advanced maker of encryption devices. And for decades, they were producing these devices and selling them to intelligence services all across the world. Loads of countries were involved with this crypto AG. The Vatican too, they sold them to the Vatican. But here's the kicker. For over 50 years, they were doing this. But the whole time, crypto AG was secretly owned by the CIA. And these spy agencies and intelligence services and diplomats their devices that were supposedly encrypted, they all had backdoors built into them. And the CIA and the NSA were reading all of their supposedly encrypted messages the entire time. Now, what makes this so outrageous is this was going on for 50 years. So just think about that for a second. For over 50 years, this supposedly private company was producing these devices, selling them to the world's most sophisticated intelligence agencies in the world, and not a single one of them, not a single one of them ever discovered the back door in the devices or discovered the fact they were buying from the CIA and the NSA and that this was a shill company. I think it's just important that we lay out that cryptocurrencies, as much as we like to think that it's something that is new and technologically on the cutting edge, is absolutely not. Uh, and if you go back to something like the Enigma, when that was broken in World War II, and uh, this, is really, mm. this is really important to understand too, is that when they broke Enigma, they didn't tell anyone and they didn't act on that information for years. I mean, they had the information coming in and if they could act on it, they would. But they were extremely careful to ensure that they never acted on it in any way that would allow the Germans to be even the slightest bit suspicious that they had broken it. And this meant allowing cities to get bombed. This meant allowing ships to get blown up so long as it didn't unveil that they broke the code because there's no it is not useful to them to break a code. That's not the aim. The aim is to break a code and never have your enemy know that you've broken the code because that's where the power comes from.
you know, the power comes from them not knowing. So they allowed many times for ships to get blown up and for people to die. Thousands of people died just to protect the secret that they'd broken Enigma. Now, going back to cryptocurrencies, that is exactly the kind of scam that they would want to pull off. They would want to have the access, backdoors to it, break the code without you ever knowing. It's no good if you yeah. know. Of course, that just ruins the whole thing. And the and I guess we could maybe talk a little bit about quantum computing because that is for a lot of people already on the radar as something that even if they did not create these cryptocurrencies, even if Bitcoin is legitimate, and I'm not saying either way, I just want to have the open debate so people can make really clear and conscious decisions on this. But even if they didn't create it, and there's a lot of mystique and reasons to, su to suggest they could have had a hand in it, but even if they didn't, there is always the threat that they already have a backdoor to it through quantum computing. Now, right now, quantum computing, they say, is nowhere near powerful enough to break Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's something at the minute, like for, uh, I think at the moment they've got 400 to 450 qubits. I think IBM has that computer. Now, that's that's out there in the open. And they say you need 13 million qubits in a quantum computer to break crypto or Bitcoin. I think it's SHA-256 is what it's Two, called. 256. So they need 13 million. Now, cryptographers say that that will be achieved by 2030. So to believe that they have already broke it, we basically have to be able to allow our thoughts to go to the idea that they're 10 years ahead of us and that we just don't know it. That's it. 10, 15 years. Now, I think they're probably about 30 years, personally, maybe more. I don't know. So I, I just want to hand that over to you, Ian. What do you think about the technology and the hidden technology? Because you've done a lot of research on this yourself. Is it possible that they already have the power to break these with quantum computers? Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it's such an interesting question, and it, and it ties into something that, that I talk about um, a lot. So to me, this whole digital currency, it's the capstone on a pyramid of control that they've been trying to build for a long, long, long time. And it, it allows everything they want, total control of the monetary system, uh, total control of the end user, total information. Those are all things that uh, control freaks would want, right? And be very interested in. And so um, I feel like that this has been being built up to for a long, long, long time. Like you say, I believe that the conception of this probably came on not long after around the Enigma machine and Turing and that beginning of computing, right? That very quickly, the bankers realized, wow, we could use this to get what we really want, which is ultimate control. And this would be the, you know, Malachian slash Satanist bankers that I'm talking about, which not all bankers, hard to believe, but not all bankers are of that elk. So I did, do want to just say that. As far as the technology piece, like how far ahead are they? Well, I think that, a very conservative estimate is that they have had quantum computing since I think that the first quantum computer may have been like functioning, right? Like high level with the level of qubits that you're describing may have gone online when they turned on that uh, gigantic data center in Utah that the NSA has. That to me would be kind of like actually the latest date that they had a fully functioning quantum computer. I believe that that computer probably that they turned on that apparently needs uh, liquid hydrogen running around it because it goes so hot to cool it off that it has to be bathed. The core has to be bathed in li liquid hydrogen. That much we know about it. We don't know anything else about the capability of this thing they have in Utah, but a lot of things changed after they turned that on. And I honestly think that that was a, 
pivotal moment in that uh, fight between these Luciferian and Malachian factions that I talk about all the time, because they then had the ability to observe in real time basically everybody on Earth. And who would you look at? Would you look at Parallel Mike or Ian? No. Why would you waste your time in that? You would look at the most powerful people on Earth, and you would start getting data, and you would start getting, in my opinion, blackmail information in order to oppress people. I noticed after they turned on that machine, something that I had been aware about for long, long before that, the pedo blackmail rings, suddenly that entered the public lexicon and the public consciousness on the fringes of the right wing in America. And I don't think that those two things are a coincidence. I think that the Luciferian faction, which I tend to see the NSA as more Luciferian and the CIA as more Malachian, not everyone in it is in that. And I'm talking about in terms of that vibration of consciousness. I believe that when they turned on that machine, they began to put their plan into motion, perhaps even advised by an artificial intelligence that uses quantum computing. So I think they've had quantum computing, the ability to use Shor's algorithm. That's what you need, apparently, to slice through the encryption on the SHA-256. They've had that capability since at least when they turned on that data center in Utah and possibly well before it. In fact, and this would be a huge derailing subject, but there is a, there's a book called The Report from Iron Mountain. And in it, it describes three ways that you could do a global takeover. And this book came out in the early 70s, right? And it's this weird thing where it's like it is a leak. It's fake. It's a fake narrative that's actually a real leak, right? In other words, they leaked something that was a fake narrative in the terms of like the details of it and where it came from and who was involved. That's all fake. What's real, though, is these three principles. They said there's three ways that you could take over the planet. And they said it would be to help humanity or whatever nonsense, right? Because there wouldn't be wars anymore, just total sl- to cradle to grave slavery, but no more wars, right? And I'm like, I'd rather have wars than cradle to grave slavery. But they said there's three ways you could take over the planet. And stop me if any of these sound slightly familiar. A global climate catastrophe. Mind you, this is after limits to growth comes out of Club of Rome, which is a Venetian you know, it's a Venetian Malachian front, you know, with their whole Malthusian theory. They came up with Malthusianism before Thomas Malthus, like a decade before in Venice. Um, but so they said a, a global climate catastrophe, right? And this is before even global cooling comes out with the their first, their alpha draft was everything's going to, well, we're facing a new ice age, right? The second one was a pandemic. <laughs> and the third one is a fake alien invasion. Now, what does it have to do with what we're just talking about? Notice any talk about aliens from official channels recently? Like an unrelenting sudden fire hose of data about it? Mysteriously, only once a Democrat got in charge, right? It it was starting to heat up. And then Trump won. And I think that caught him off guard. They had Podesta and Hillary Clinton, right? They were like, Podesta in particular was like, oh, well, I'm a big believer in the uh, the X-Files. We need to get that information out. I think the government's suppressing it. Like, these are good people, right? Right? Why? They're wanting to shape a narrative. And so I think that not only is their technology way advanced in terms of quantum computing, I'm of the opinion that they cracked anti-gravity and what was called free energy way back in the early 60s. And there's reasons why I think this, and I go into this in great depth on my channel, but it's relevant in the sense of these people's technology is way beyond our wildest dreams. And I mean, way beyond our wildest dreams. And I think quantum computing is to me like kind of a lesser thing compared to 
the physics breakthroughs they've had in terms of how that could change reality if it ever, you know, was given out to the public. So, um, yeah, I think they're way, way beyond it. And I think they already have functional quantum computing and have for a long time. Yeah, and I'm certainly inclined to agree with you. And I think if we just go back to some of the things we already mentioned, like when they cracked Enigma and they mm -hmm. kept it a secret, uh, when they had Crypto AG going for over 50 years, it just shows you a very high level of um, proficiency and skill and also the ability to cloak uh, cloak this behind secrecy. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, and, and, you know, it's the same with GPS. If you look back at GPS surveillance, I mean, what we use today, when did we start using GPS on our phones? It was probably, I'd say, 10 years ago tops where we could actually access uh, GPS imaging. But they were using that back in the 60s, in the 50s, and they could have high-resolution images back in the 50s. Uh, so, I mean, this is a long, long time ago. And I think mm -hmm. when it goes back to uh, the quantum computer, one thing that people need to understand if they don't understand quantum computing, and I am certainly no expert on this, but it, it's such a huge paradigm shift. We're essentially using an analog phone compared to the iPhone 10. That is what the leap is going to be like. It is a different thing completely. It's almost like if you took a marathon runner from today who's running like two hours, two for the, for the marathon and go back to the first ever Olympic marathon when the finishing time, I think, was around three hours. It's, you know what I mean? It's just so different. So when it comes to something like Bitcoin or any kind of encryption, and it's not just Bitcoin, Ian, these quantum computers would essentially be able to de-encrypt anything that exists out there today. You know, any, anything, that, anything that's made in the old system, the quantum computer could just, it would be like, it would be like you fighting a child. You know what I mean? Because the mm -hmm. systems are so advanced. Now, if they've got a quantum computer that's already, let's say, at 13, 13 million qubits, well, you're talking an insane amount of processing power there. And the other thing that I'd say on that is, if they are that far ahead in terms of quantum computing, then they will also have lots of quantum uh, encryption as well. You know, that's specifically made for quantum computing. And when you look at the cryptos, they are nowhere near that level. They're not even discussing quantum encryption. So they would just all be blown apart. Now, people might say, well, if that was true, we would have seen it. And then I would just say, again, just go back to what I said. <laughs> they would certainly not be allowing you to know because that gives them such an insight into your life. It allows them to follow global capital. It allows them to look into the criminal network, see who's running the show and control those networks. It's so much power to have that insight, but nobody know that they have it. And they would have to have such a fantastic psyop the same way they did with Crypto AG to ensure that nobody ever uncovered it. And you have to ask yourself, is that possible? And I just wanted to give those historic examples to show, yes, it's possible that even the world's best intelligence agencies couldn't figure it out. So us sat here on our computers, we might want to believe that they couldn't do it, but I think they could, Ian. I think they certainly could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, just to sort of piggyback on that, uh, I want to share, this is an anecdotal story, but I will tell you this is true. I was in, um, I was in the UK in... Um, 2001 and this guy said yeah i have a buddy and um i have a buddy in uh the, the the defense department there in the uk or maybe it was intelligence and this guy described me he said there's something that's going to come out in a few years and it's going to change everything and i said okay i'm listening and he described to me he described to me essentially the ipad 
right? He said, it's going to be icons and you'll just be able to touch it with your finger. And he said, it'll run all sorts of programs. It'll be able to do anything you want. It'll be like a almost comparable to a supercomputer from a decade ago, but in your pocket, you'll be able to communicate with your friends, send emails, do phone calls. You'll even be able to do video on it, all this stuff. And I was like, what the hell? And the only difference between what he described and the iPad and iPhone, which is a miniaturized version of that, was that he said it was flexible. He said that you could take it and you could bend it and it would snap back and still work. And I think that they decided that the profit model doesn't work very well if it's that indestructible. I mean, they've gotten worse and worse and worse and they break faster and faster and faster, you know, planned obsolescence. But he described it precisely to me in 2001, which is just nuts, which is just nuts. Because then when it came out seven years later, I was like, holy crap, it's the thing that guy was talking about. Like, at first, I didn't understand what an iPhone was. And I was like, oh, that's not that interesting. And my wife at the time was like, oh, this is amazing. It's life changing. And then she got one. And I said, this is the Library of Alexandria in your pocket. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so um, that's, I mean, it's an anecdotal story. And people can believe me or not. I'm telling you it's true. But, um, you know, I I had another guy tell me after that. um, I met this guy. And um, I had an iPhone. And he goes, you know, we had those things back in the 80s. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I was in black ops in the 80s. And we had we had iPhones. He said they were a little bit clunkier. They were a lot bigger and chunkier and thicker. But we basically had iPhones in the late 80s. And I was like, you're kidding me. And again, I don't know, this guy could have been bullshitting me. But I had heard that other guy say something very similar in 2001. So it made me go, God, maybe he's telling me the truth. So anyone who thinks that the government is being open about their level of technological prowess. Like, why would you think that? We know it's not true. It, there's not a chance on earth it's true. It would be a strategic blunder of the highest order. Like, how do you think these people have control by being open and honest about stuff? Like, what part of any government anywhere is like, you know, transparent and, hey, we're doing it for you, maybe Bhutan or some like nicer country, but any of the Western governments, any of the great powers, obviously secrecy is a huge part of how they do things. You know, it it baffles my mind that or boggles my mind that people could possibly think that they're, they're being honest and straightforward with us. And of course, technology would be the number one thing you'd want to protect exactly as you described with the Enigma machine. So it, to me, it's, it's, it's silly and it's naive and it's like, come on, let's be adults here. Let's be adults here. Obviously, they have technology far beyond our capabilities. It's speculative. We're going to have to speculate to say, like, how far advanced are they? We don't know. And if you did know and you talked about it, you get disappeared awful quick. So I don't actually know. This is speculation, but it's reasoned in form of speculation based on historical uh, antecedents, you know, based on things that we have already seen in the past, we can know that clearly their technology is significantly advanced. It's simply a question of what technology, how advanced. And I think quantum computing is one of the easiest ones that you can point to and say, I, I would even take it a step further. They probably wouldn't have released Bitcoin if they didn't already have a way to get at least backdoor it, if not crack it completely the way they can with Shor's algorithm. So it could be they've had quantum computing since, you know, what is that, 2011 when it came out, something like that. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, at a minimum, they were able to get into it instantly because I'm convinced that it has a, you know, 
an intelligence background. Like it just seems like such a fairy tale story to me that they would think some noble super genius just released it and the government can't figure it out. They're baffled. Get out of here. Come on. They monitor all electronic communications on earth in real time and have for forever. Like, come on. Echelon and all those things that all those reveals, you know, what Russell Tice talked about. And that's one of the most gagged people ever, uh, former NSA guy. And he started talking about the National Reconnaissance Organization, the satellites, and then disappeared. <sighs> Gone. You know, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of love for people in Bitcoin because we're all after the same thing. We're all trying to find mm -hmm. freedom. And I own Bitcoin because I'm extremely happy to be paid in Bitcoin for any work that I do because other people believe in it. And I certainly have no problem holding it because ultimately it is a way to store wealth and it has its means and functions. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not controlled, but in the same way, gold markets are controlled. Does that mean that we don't own gold? So we have to think of these things from a 10,000 foot view. It's not as simple as good or bad, useless or useful. That's not the way I look at it at all. Uh, and I always say to people, I might be wrong. You might be wrong. So that's why we risk analyze everything. And we say, if the risk is not zero, and it, and the risk can't be zero given the history of these technology technological advances. If the risk isn't zero, then that means we need to try and guess what the risk might be. It could be 10% risk that it was made by them. You might think it's 10%. You might think it's 1%. I might think it's 50, 100, whatever it is. If the risk isn't zero, you have to factor it into your calculations in the same way that you have to factor in the risk of a gold confiscation. You know what I mean? There's always risks and I'm not down ever for just seeing the bright side and only the bright side and being blind to the potential drawbacks. Uh, so I just want to put that out there because I've got a lot, a lot of love for the people who are really into that stuff. And I've got some friends who are maximalists and I pray for those people. I don't want anything to go wrong for those people. Uh, but I do think being all in on any narrative is dangerous. And I think Absolutely. particularly with the technological side of things, we have to just pull ourselves back and say, right, do they have the, do they have the ability? And I think we've proven, yes, they were talking about these things in the eighties. Uh, the NSA has employed some of the brightest minds out there. Do they have the motive? Well, I think that one's, uh, we don't have to discuss that one. Uh, and is there any evidence? Is there any evidence that they could have done it and got away with it? And I'd go back to Crypto AG and say, absolutely, there's evidence that they could get away with it and that they would do it. So I think once you tick all those three boxes, then you have to take it seriously. Like, oh, shit, maybe that is what's happening. And therefore, what am I going to do? And how could this play out? Because there could be a huge rug pull on this one. Uh, and I yeah. think in part two, we're going to get to this one, Ian, where we actually talk about, is there a spiritual part of this as well? Is there actually a karmic consequence? And are we supporting the development of the system that they're going to be using to enslave us? Maybe they're already using it for those purposes by having this secret insight into our lives. And we have to really factor that into our own spiritual life. And this is an individual thing. You know, so I'm not trying to put guilt onto anyone for anything. I'm talking about me personally. This is why I don't buy them and use them. However, I would love to talk to you about that because you've got a really good connection to your spiritual life too. So if we could take that into part two, that'd be fantastic. Fantastic. So are we going to go into part two then? Let's do it. Okay, we're going to leave it there for part one, everyone. I think it was an awesome first part and I'm really excited to go into part two. 
So I hope you enjoyed this one and for sure there's going to be some people out there who are simply not ready to hear that maybe this whole crypto craze is an operation, a very sophisticated one, but history shows us that this is precisely how the NSA work. I don't know, I just think there's too many unanswered questions and when we look back at the history as we did in tonight's episode and the story of Crypto AG, it shows us one thing, that these people are obsessed with controlling cryptography and they can be extremely extremely effective in their deceptions to trap people in their systems i mean they had backdoors in the encryption devices of something like 60 percent of the world's intelligence agencies who themselves had whole teams dedicated to cryptography and analyzing these to look for backdoors and they managed to get it around them for almost 50 damn years. So you have to admit that's pretty high level stuff. And the goal is not to destroy crypto, it's to control it, to run it. That is what intelligence does. The whole idea that they're waging war against crypto, to me that's all a bit of a joke because they could easily win that war. It could be over tomorrow if they wanted, but ultimately they want to run with this and I think it's because they have control over the sector and they're simply consolidating power there and using it to take us towards the CBDC future. Now, of course, at some point there's going to be a rug pull. But make no mistake, I'm not against Bitcoin or cryptos in general. I would much rather be wrong on this one and especially Bitcoin. But for me personally, I'm simply way too skeptical on this space. So my take is if you're going to have some fantastic, use it to speculate on the price. But be very, very careful how far you go into this one because you might just be wrong. All of us might be. We simply don't know. And that's why you have to diversify. So hopefully part one got you thinking about that. But going into part two, we are going to have a much deeper conversation into this one because we're going to turn our attentions to XRP. Now XRP is very different to Bitcoin in that it's actually pitching itself not as a way to opt out of the fiat system and to escape totalitarianism and the big state, but actually it's pitching itself as the foundations of CBDCs. So this is a really different prospect and you have to understand XRP is tied in with the NSA, the Bank of International Settlements, Bill Gates, the Clintons, and they are out in the open saying that we're going to be building the platform for central bank digital currencies. So essentially they're telling us that they're going to help build the system that is going to enslave us. So this is totally different to Bitcoin and this is why we take it up a gear in part two as we discuss the spiritual side of this one. And me and Ian give our unique take on it because again this is about not judging other people i'm a firm believer that each of us has to make our own decisions in life and live with the consequences but also we have to abide of course by natural law and not harm others and this one certainly has a big great area because central bank digital currencies are going to cause more suffering and more harm than anything we have ever seen before in human history so we have to think more deeply on these matters myself included so hopefully i haven't alienated you all with part one and you're going to stick around for part two i think you are you smart people members i I will see you over there for part two on parallelmind.com. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, it's one month for free if you join as an annual member. Thank you all for listening. I wish each and every one of you good health and happiness. And of course, I will see you all in the next one. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.
peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.